Chapter Four of Mary Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kim Senior. Mary Barton by Elizabeth Claghorn Gaskell. Four, Old Alice's History. To envy note between the ample sky, To mourn no evil dee, note hour misspent, And like a living violet, Silently return in sweets to heaven what goodness lent, Then bend between the chastening shower content. Elliot. Another year passed on. The waves of time seem long since To have swept away all trace of poor Mary Barton. But her husband still thought of her, Although with a calm and quiet grief, In the silent watches of the night, and Mary would start from her hard-earned sleep and think in her half-dreamy, half-awakened state. She saw her mother stand by her bedside, as she used to do, in the days of long ago, with a shaded candle and an expression of ineffable tenderness while she looked on her sweeping child. But Mary rubbed her eyes and sank back on her pillow awake, and knowing it was a dream, and still in all her troubles and perplexities. Her heart called on her mother for aid, and she thought, If mother had but lived, she would have helped me. Forgetting that the woman's sorrows are far more difficult to mitigate than a child's, even by the mighty power of a mother's love, and unconscious of the fact that she was far superior in sense and spirit to the mother she mourned. Aunt Esther was still mysteriously absent, and people had grown weary of wondering and begun to forget. Barton still attended his club and was an active member of the trades union, indeed more frequently than ever, since the time of Mary's return in the evening was so uncertain, and as she occasionally, in very busy times, remained all night. His chiefest friend was still George Wilson, although he had no great sympathy on the questions that agitated Barton's mind. But their hearts were bound by old ties to one another, and the remembrance of former things gave an unspoken charm to their meetings. Our old friend, the cub-like lad, Jem Wilson, had shot up into the powerful, well-made young man with a sensible face enough, nay, a face that might have been handsome, had it not been here and there marked by the smallpox. He worked with one of the great firms of engineers, who send from out their towns of workshops, engines, and machinery to the dominions of the Tsar and the Sultan. His father and mother were never weary of praising Jem, at all which commendation pretty Mary Barton would toss her head, seeing clearly enough that they wished her to understand what a good husband he would make, and to favour his love, about which he never dared to speak, whatever eyes and looks revealed. One day, in the early winter time, when people were provided with warm substantial gowns, not likely soon to wear out, and when, accordingly, business was rather slack at Miss Simmons, Mary met Alice Wilson, coming home from her half-day's work at some tradesman's house. Mary and Alice had always liked each other. Indeed, Alice looked with particular interest on the motherless girl, the daughter of her whose forgiving kiss had comforted her in many sleepless hours. So there was a warm greeting between the tidy old woman and the blooming young work-girl, and then Alice ventured to ask if she would come in and take her tea with her that very evening. "'You'll think it dull enough to come just to sit with an old woman like me, "'but there's a tidy young lass as lives in the floor above who does plain work. "'And now and then, a bit in your own line, Mary. "'She's granddaughter to old Job Lay. "'A spinner, and a good girl she is. Do come, Mary. 
I've a terrible wish to make you known to each other. She's a genteel-looking lass, too. At the beginning of this speech, Mary had feared the intended visitor was to be no other than Alice's nephew. But Alice was too delicate-minded to plan a meeting, even for her dear Jem, when one would have been an unwilling party. And Mary, relieved from her apprehension by the conclusion, gladly agreed to come. How busy Alice felt! It was not often she had any one to tea, and now her sense of the duties of a hostess were almost too much for her. She made haste home, and lighted the unwilling fire, borrowing a pair of bellows to make it burn the faster. For herself she was always patient. She let the coals take their time. Then she put on her pattens, and went to fill her kettle at the pump in the next court, and on her way she borrowed a cup. Of odd saucers she had plenty, serving as plates when occasion required. Half an ounce of tea and a quarter of a pound of butter went far to absorb her morning's wages, but this was an unusual occasion. In general, she used herb tea for herself when at home, unless some thoughtful mistress made a present of tea-leaves from her more abundant household. The two chairs drawn out for visitors, and duly swept and dusted, an old board arranged with some skill upon two old candle-boxes set on end, rather rickety to be sure, but she knew the seat of old and when to sit lightly. Indeed, the whole affair was more for apparent dignity of position than for any real ease. A little, very little round table, put just before the fire, which by this time was blazing merrily. Her unlacquered ancient third-hand tea-tray, arranged with a black teapot, two cups with a red and white pattern, and one with the old friendly willow pattern, and saucers, not to match, on one of the extra supply, the lump of butter flourished away. All these preparations complete, Alice began to look about her with satisfaction, and with a sense of wonder, what more could be done to add to the comfort of the evening. She took one of the chairs away from its appropriate place by the table, and putting it close to the broad, large, hanging shelf I told you about when I first described her cellar dwelling, and mounting on it, she pulled towards her an old deal box, and thence a quantity of the oat bread of the north, the clap bread of Cumberland and Westmoreland, and descending carefully with the thin cakes, threatening to break to pieces in her hand, she placed them on the bare table, with the belief that her visitors would have an unusual treat in eating the bread of her childhood. She brought out a good piece of a four-pound loaf of common household bread as well, and that sat down to rest, really to rest, and not to pretend on one of the rush-bottomed chairs. The candle was ready to be lighted, the kettle boiled, the tea was awaiting its doom in its paper parcel. All was ready. A knock at the door. It was Margaret, the young workwoman, who lived in the worms above, who, having heard the bustle and the subsequent quiet, began to think it was time to pay her visit below. She was a sallow, unhealthy, sweet-looking young woman, with a careworn look. Her dress was humble and very simple, consisting of some kind of dark stuff gown, her neck being covered by a drab shawl or large handkerchief, pinned down behind and at the sides in front. The old woman gave her a hearty greeting, and made her sit down on the chair she had just left, while she balanced herself on the board seat, in order that Margaret might think it was quite her free and independent choice to sit there. "'I cannot think what keeps Mary Barton. She's quite grand with her late hours,' said Alice, as Mary still delayed. The truth was, Mary was dressing herself. Yes, 
to come to poor old Alice's. She thought it worth while to consider what gown she should put on. It was not for Alice, however. You may be pretty sure. No, they knew each other too well. But Mary liked to make an impression, and in this it must be owned she was a pretty often gratified, and there was this strange girl to consider just now. So she put on her pretty new blue merino, made tight to her throat her little linen collar and linen cuffs, and sallied forth to impress poor gentle Margaret. She certainly succeeded. Alice, who never thought much about beauty, had never told Margaret how pretty Mary was, and as she came in, half blushing at her own self-consciousness, Margaret could hardly take her eyes off her, and Mary put down her long black lashes with a sort of dislike of the very observation she had taken such pains to secure. Can you fancy the bustle of Alice to make the tea, to pour it out, and sweeten it to their liking, to help and help again to clap bread and bread and butter? Can you fancy the delight with which she watched her piled-up clap bread disappear before the hungry girls, and listened to the praises of her home-remembered dainty? My mother used to send me some clap bread by any north country person. Bless her! She knew how good such things taste when far away from home. Not but what every one likes it. When I was in service, my fellow servants were always glad to share with me. Eh, it's a long time ago, Jan. Do tell us about it, Alice, said Margaret. Why, lass, there's nothing to tell. There was more mouths at home than could be fed. Tom, that's Will's father. You don't know Will, but he's a sailor to foreign parts. Had come to Manchester, and sent word what terrible lots of work was to be had, both for lads and lasses. So father sent George first. You know George well enough, Mary. And then work was scarce out toward Burton, where we lived. And father said, I mun try and get a place. And George wrote, as how wages were far higher in Manchester than Milnthorpe or Lancaster. And lasses, I was young and thoughtless, and thought it was a fine thing to go so far from home. So, one day, the butcher he brings us a letter for George, to say he'd heard on a place, and I was all agog to go, and father was pleased like, but mother said little, and that little was very quiet. I've often thought she was a bit hurt to see me so ready to go. God forgive me! But she packed up my clothes, and some of the better end of her own as would fit me, in yon little paper box up there. It's good for nought now, but I would liefer live without fire, than break it up to be burnt, and yet it is going on for eighty years old, for she had it when she was a girl, and brought all her clothes in it to father's when they were married. But as I was saying, she did not cry, though the tears was often in her eyes, and I seen her looking after me down the lane as long as I were in sight, with her hand shading her eyes, and that were the last look I ever had on her. Alice knew that before long she should go to that mother, and besides, the griefs and bitter woes of youth have worn themselves out before we grow old, but she looked so sorrowful that the girls caught her sadness, and mourned for the poor woman who had been dead and gone so many years ago. "'Did you never see her again, Alice? Did you never go home while she was alive?' asked Mary. "'No, nor since. Many a time and oft have I planned to go.' I plan it yet, and hope to go home again before it please God to take me. I used to try and save money enough to go for a week when I was in service, but first one thing came and then another. First Mrs. Children fell ill of the measles, and just when the week I'd asked for came, and then I couldn't leave them, 
for one and all cried for me to nurse them. Then Mrs. herself fell sick, and I could go less than ever. For you see, they kept a little shop, and he drank, and Mrs. and me was all there was to mind children and shop and all, and cook and wash besides. Mary was glad she had not gone into service and said so. Eh, lass, thou little knows the pleasure of helping others. I was as happy there as could be, almost as happy as I was at home. Well, but next year I thought I could go at a leisure time, and Mrs. told me I should have a fortnight then, and I used to sit up all that winter working hard at patchwork to have a quilt of my own making to take to my mother. But Master died, and Mrs. went away from Manchester, and I'd to look out for a place again. Well, but, interrupted Mary, I should have thought that that was the best time to go home. No, I thought not. You see, it was a different thing going home for a week on a visit, maybe with money in my pocket to give father a lift, to going home to be a burden to him. Besides, how could I hear of a place there? Anyways, I thought it best to stay, though perhaps it might have been better to a gone, for then I should have seen mother again. And the poor old woman looked puzzled. I'm sure you did what you thought right, said Margaret gently. Ay, lass, that's it, said Alice, raising her head and speaking more cheerfully. That's the thing. And then, let the Lord send what he sees fit. Not but that I grieved sore, oh, sore and sad, when towards spring next year, when my quilt were all done to the lining, George came in one evening to tell me my mother was dead. I cried many a night at after. I'd no time for crying by day, for that missus was terrible strict. She would not hearken to my going to the funeral, and indeed I would have been too late, for George set off that very night by the coach, and the letter had been kept or some it. Posts were not like the posts nowadays, and he found the burial all over, and father talking of flitting, for he couldn't abide the cottage after mother was gone. Asterisk. Come to me, Tyrell, soon at after supper. Shakespeare, Richard the Third. Was it a pretty place? asked Mary. Pretty, lass. I never seed such a bonny bit anywhere. You see, there are hills there that seem to go up into the skies. Not near, maybe, but that makes them all the bonnier. I used to think they were golden hills of heaven, about which mother sang when I was a child. Yon are the golden hills of heaven, where ye shall never win. Something about a ship and a lover, that nay have been a lover, that ballad was. Well, and near our cottage was rocks. Eh, lasses, you don't know what rocks are in Manchester. Grey pieces of stone, as large as a house, all covered over with mosses of different colours, some yellow, some brown, and the ground beneath them knee-deep in purple heather smelling say sweet and fragrant and the low music of the humming bee forever sounding among it mother used to send sally and me out to gather ling and heather for besoms and it was such pleasant work we used to come home at an evening loaded so as you could not see us for all that it was so light to carry and then mother would make us sit down under the old hawthorn tree where we used to make our house among the great roots as stood above the ground to pick and tie up the heather it seems all like yesterday. 
and yet it's a long, long time agone. Poor sister Sally has been in her grave this forty year and more, but I often wonder if the hawthorn is standing yet, and if the lasses still go to gather heather, as we did, many and many a year, past and gone, I sicken at heart to see the old spot once more. Maybe next summer I may set off, if God spares me to see next summer. "'Why, have you never been in all these many years?' asked Mary. "'Why, lass, first one wanted me, and then another, and I couldn't go without money either, and I got very poor at times. Tom was a scapegrace poor fellow, and always wanted help of one kind or another, and his wife, for I think scapegraces are always married long before steady folk.' was but a helpless kind of body. She were always ailing, and he were always in trouble. So I had enough to do with my hands and my money, too, for that matter. They died within twelve months of each other, leaving one lad. They had had seven, but the Lord had taken six to his self. Will, as I was telling you on, and I took him myself, and left service to make a bit of a home-place for him. And a fine lad he was, the very spit of his father, as to looks only steadier. "'for he was steady, although nought would serve him but going to sea. "'I tried all I could to set him against a sailor's life. "'Says I, folks is as sick as dogs all the time there at sea. "'Your own mother told me, for she came from foreign parts, being a Manx woman, "'that she'd have thanked anyone for throwing her into the water. "'Nay, I sent him all the way to Runcorn by the Duke's Canal, "'that he might know what the sea were.' and I looked to see him come back as white as a sheet with vomiting. <laughs> but the lad went on to Liverpool and saw real ships, and came back more set than ever on being a sailor, and he said as how he had never been sick at all, and thought he could stand the sea pretty well. So I told him he mun do as he liked, and he thanked me and kissed me, for all that I was very frabbit with him. And now he's gone to South America, at t'other side of the sun, they tell me. Asterisk Frabbit, peevish. Mary stole a glance at Margaret to see what she thought of Alice's geography, but Margaret looked so quiet and demure that Mary was in doubt if she were not really ignorant. Not that Mary's knowledge was very profound, but she had seen a terrestrial globe and knew where to find France and the continents on a map. After this long talking, Alice seemed lost for a time in reverie, and the girls respecting her thoughts which they suspected had wandered to the home and scenes of her childhood, were silent. All at once she recalled her duties as a hostess, and by an effort brought back her mind to the present time. "'Margaret, you must let Mary hear thee sing. I don't know about fine music myself, but folks say Margaret is a rare singer, and I know she can make me cry at any time by singing the Odom Weaver. Do sing that, Margaret, there's a good lass.' With a faint smile, as if amused at Alice's choice of a song, Margaret began. "'Do you know the old hymn-weaver? Not unless you are Lancashire-born and bred, for it is a complete Lancashire ditty. I will copy it for you.' The Old Hymn-weaver 1. I'm an old cotton-weaver, as many a one knows. I've note for to eat, and I've worn out my clothes.' You'd hardly give tuppence for all as I've earned. My clogs are both brostin and stockings I've none. You'd think it were hard to be brought into the world to be clemmed, and to do the best as you can. 
Old Dickie and Billy's can telling me long. We'd a had better times, if I'd but hold my tongue. I've holdin my tongue till I've near stopped my breath. I think I, my heart, I soon clem to death. Old Dickie's will crammed, he never were clemmed, and he never picked o'er in his life. We tort on six week, thinking each day were the last. We shifted and shifted, till now we're quite fast. We lived upon nettles, while nettles were good, and Waterloo porridge, the best of our food. I'm telling you true, I can find folk a know, who were living no better nor me. Old Billy a dance at the Baileys one day, for a shop that I owed him, as I could not pay, but he were too lat, for old Billy o' the bent had sowed the tit and cart, and tain goods for the rent. We'd nought left but the old stool, that were seats for two, and on it cowered Margaret and me. Then the Baileys looked round as sly as a mouse, when they seed as all the goods were taken out of the house, says one chap to the t'other, "'All's gone, thou may see.' Says I, near Fretmon, you're welcome to me. They made no more ado but whopped up the old stool, and we both leet whack upon the flags. Then I said to a Margaret, as we lay ponded floor, We's never be lower in this world, I'm sure. If ever things a turn, I'm sure they mun mend, for I think in my heart we're both at the far end. For meat we have none, nor looms to weave on. E dad, there is good lost as found. Our Margaret de Cares had who clothes to put on, who'd go up to London and talk to the great man, and if things were not altered when their who had been, who's fully resolved to sue what moth an end, who's note to say again the king, but who likes a fair thing, and who says who can tell when who's hurt. Asterisk, Clem to starve with hunger. Quote, hard is the choice when the valiant must eat their arms or Clem. Unquote, ben Johnson. Clem to pick oar means to throw the shuttle in, in hand loom weaving. The air to which this is sung is a kind of droning recitative, depending much on expression and feeling. To read it, it may perhaps seem humorous but it is that humour which is near akin to pathos, and to those who have seen the distress it describes, it is a powerfully pathetic song. Margaret had both witnessed the destitution and had the heart to feel it, and withal her voice was of that rich and rare order which does not require any great compass of notes to make itself appreciated. Alice had her quiet enjoyment of tears, but Margaret, with fixed eye and earnest dreamy look, seemed to have become more and more absorbed in realizing to herself the woe she had been describing, and which she felt might at that very moment be suffering and hopeless, within a short distance of their comparative comfort. Suddenly she burst forth with all the power of her magnificent voice, as if a prayer from her very heart for all who were in distress, in the grand supplication, "'Lord, remember David!' Mary held her breath, unwilling to lose a note, it was so clear, so perfect, so imploring. A far more correct musician than Mary might have paused with equal admiration of the really scientific knowledge with which the poor, depressed-looking young needlewoman used her superb and flexile voice. 
Deborah Travis herself, once an Oldham factory girl and afterwards the darling of fashionable crowds as Mrs. Knivet, might have owned a sister in her art. She stopped, and with tears of holy sympathy in her eyes, Alice thanked the songstress, who resumed her calm, demure manner, much to Mary's wonder, for she looked at her unweariedly, as if surprised that the hidden power should not be perceived in the outward appearance. Quiet enough to hear a fine, though rather quavering, male voice, going over again one or two strains of Margaret's song. "'That's Grandfather!' exclaimed she. "'I must be going, for he said he should not be at home until past nine. "'Well, I'll not say nay, for I have to be up by four, "'for a very heavy wash at Mrs. Simpson's, "'but I shall be terrible glad to see you again at any time, lasses, "'and I hope you'll take to one another.' "'As the girls ran up the cellar steps together, Margaret said, "'Just step in and see Grandfather. "'I should like him to see you.' "'And Mary consented.' End of chapter 4